The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So we'll be starting chapter six. For those of you who are following along, have your own copy of Jack Kornfield's new book, The Wise Heart. Um, and this is the chapter discussing the uh, maybe paradox or the integration of the what he calls the universal and the personal. And this is something that's probably familiar to all of us just reading, talking with each other, and then, of course, in our own experience, we're naturally at times interested and naturally at times oblivious to one of the other, one or the other. So sometimes the universal is called the absolute or the ultimate. Sometimes the personal is called the relative or conventional reality. And uh, a lot of times, of course, especially when we're first move to be interested in a spiritual practice or spiritual life, there is a strong sense of, my God, life is difficult. <laughs> having a body, having a human existence is challenging. And we get really interested in transcendence, like, get me out of here. Get me away from the messiness of my own mind or the messiness of your minds or the, the world around me. We just want to escape. So a lot of Spirituality has that flavor of escaping, you know, wanting to be saved, wanting to transcend. And I don't mean to be putting it down because there's some, there's some uh, deep wisdom about transcendence. But if that's all we understand, like, get me out of here, then it's limited. It's a limited understanding of what spiritual practice or spiritual life is about. Actually, it's just a subtle aversion, isn't it? And we hate the messiness. We hate having duties and responsibilities. We hate the fact that this body gets old, becomes more creaky, eventually falls apart and dies. There's so many parts of life that are challenging, and the basic instinct is to not want it to be this way. And then we can corrupt our spiritual life or practice to be a way of getting rid of what we don't like about life. So that's the universal or the ultimate or the absolute or whatever you want to call it can be corrupted in that way. The personal, of course, can also be corrupted. The personal just means, you know, being embedded, grounded in this existence with these responsibilities, with these habits. And being confused by the personal means whatever inclination we have, like to be home in bed, it becomes huge. You know, it becomes an attachment. And then there's a feeling like, I'll be happy when I get home and I'm in bed. Or I'll get happy when I fix this problem in my life. I'll be happy when I finally can get my mind to quiet down. And so there, here we're investing our whole source of happiness in something very personal, like having a quiet mind, or being in bed, or 
you know, whatever it is, getting rid of something. The way that Jack Hornfield articulates this principle in this chapter, he says, our life has universal and personal nature. Both dimensions must be respected if we are to be happy and free. I think this is what we we need to understand. So much of what we would call human suffering is swinging from one extreme to the other extreme over and over again and missing the middle. And some of you know, we talked about this yesterday at the half-day retreat, the Buddha's first talk, he talked about the middle way as not being about indulging in such experience. Right? So that's really the personal life. If I can just organize my sense experience, I'll be happy. If I can just get it just right, make things the way I like it, if I can control the world, manipulate the world in such a way that things are the way that I like them to be, that's the end all. That will really be what I'm looking for. And I can truly rest in happiness. So he, in this first talk the Buddha gave, he said, that's not the answer. Indulging in sense experience, in the experience of our life, thinking that it's going to deliver happiness, that's not the answer. And then more importantly, because he was talking to five very serious ascetics at the time that he had been practicing with earlier, into extreme asceticism, then he said, rejecting the world of sense experience, that's not the way either. So. I'm teaching something that's not about indulging, not about thinking sense experience is going to bring happiness, lasting happiness. And I'm also teaching a way that uh, understands that rejecting the world, the world of sense experience, that that's not the way either. And that's that transcendence view. It's another way of talking about transcendence. It's like the world's messy. I want something more refined, more pure, you know, more like perfect. So it's any kind of utopian thinking, whether it's for you about heaven and getting to heaven, or some spiritual guru who's going to save us, or any of that sort of idealistic, when that's all there is, is this, uh, this idea of like uh, rejecting the messiness, getting to something that we imagine is pure. So the Buddha rejected those two. But we don't want to, there's some wisdom in both. Like the wisdom in the universal, what we need to, you know, we need to bring both of these together. So it's not about that they're, you know, that both instincts are wrong as much as that they're not meant to be, like, uh, they're meant to be integrated, not uh, separate. So what's the insight in the universal that's relevant? Well, when we, you know, when we're, actually, let me take the uh, personal first. It just makes a little bit more sense. So what do we learn from the personal that's relevant, that's not something we want to forget? Well, when we pay attention to our personal, this conventional reality, this relative reality of being a person who's got a job, who has a wife, or has a body, has conditioned habits in the mind, 
What we learn by paying attention, by being mindful of our habit energy, of the way the body is, we, we learn this basic, essential lesson of karma, cause and effect. Intentions have consequences. Whether our intention is acted out only in terms of thinking, or maybe we're saying something out of our intention, or maybe we're acting, but if we pay attention in an honest, clear way with this personal experience we're having all the time, the ringing truth, the obvious, most obvious, powerful truth we get is it matters what we think, what we say, and what we do. The experience we're all having right now, I mean, each of us, of course, is having a different experience, but this experience that we're having right now, whatever it is for us, is the fruit of what came before, right? Where else did it come from? It's simply the natural unfolding of what came before. But what came before? Thoughts came before, words came before, actions came before. So if, you, if you're really interested in what kind of life you've been living, in a very real way, this is the fruit this moment right now is the fruit of the kind of life we've been living. The particular inclinations in the mind, particular mind states, for example, that dominate tend to come up over and over again. Even the body, the way the body is, is so much the result of what's come before. Now, there are other influences besides our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And then, you know, the world of the future, where does that come from? Well, the only, the only thing we can add to this unfolding is how we're relating right now. This is the karma, right? This is the action right now, how I'm thinking about things right now and what I'm saying and doing about things right now. This is the present moment input. In a way, this is the only input we have to the future. Like, you really care about the future? Then what do we pay attention to if we really care about the future? Well, the only input to the future is right now, how we're relating to right now. That's it. So this is understanding the personal. We're really getting cause and effect in the most immediate direct sense. So not theoretically cause and effect, but we're really getting that it matters. What we're contributing right now in this moment, it really matters. It's the only way that we can participate in how it is for us. Right now, what we're thinking, what we're saying, what we're doing. Now, a lot of the time, you know, we're kind of in this other mode, like, that's just too much of a bother to be vigilant, you know, to really be respectful of cause and effect, respectful of the particular input that we're bringing to the moment. It's so easy. I mean, even I consider myself a pretty sincere practitioner, but it's easy to, you know, not that it would be, we do it consciously, because if we're really bright and awake, we're, we're vigilant in a way. But we can get sloppy thinking that, well, I'll behave later. 
you know, I'll pay attention later. I'll be respectful to the present moment input later. And a lot of times when moments are ordinary, we're not seriously suffering, it's easy to put it off. But even when we're having a relatively pleasant moment, we can be contributing to happiness in this very direct, personal way. So this is, you know, this is a big part of the spiritual path, this personal approach to happiness. And you may not like the word personal, so you can use a different word. But understanding uh, our path, our path of practice in terms of karma, in terms of understanding what is skillful and unskillful. Because that's really what we're understanding, like how I'm relating, what I'm contributing, or how I'm participating in this moment. Is it setting in motion something that I wish to have set in motion or not? So if I'm slightly aversive to being here tonight, then I'm setting that emotion. I'm going to be more likely to be slightly aversive in the future if I'm aversive now. Well, you know, if we look carefully, we see being aversive doesn't feel good. It's a way of disconnecting. We feel apart. It's tight. It colors everything in a way that's not pleasant. So if we understand the significance, the relevance of what we're contributing by being aversive, it will shock us, like, well, maybe I don't want to be aversive. Is there another way to relate in this moment? Is that my only option, to be aversive? So that's that understanding of personal, uh, or this sort of more direct um, practice of skillfulness and unskillfulness, is a central part of what the Buddha taught. But he also taught something that you could call the universal opening, you know, traditionally he talked about it in terms of opening to the three characteristics, seeing anicca and permanence is one of the main pointings from the Buddha. Notice that things are changing. Notice the impermanent or the conditional, ephemeral nature of thought, of sensation, of sound, emotion, of all things. It's impersonal, it's conditional, it's ephemeral. Life is truly a process. It's not a thing. There isn't really a mark or a you or a this or a that. There's not a common ground. These are changing, unfolding processes. You don't find a thing there. And as we pay attention, as we learn how to relax more with clarity, to open, it just becomes slowly, it becomes more and more obvious how fluid, ephemeral, impersonal it is. Like one of the relatively easy ways to see this, when we're sitting and we're feeling relatively stable and we're not afraid of thoughts, we're not for or against thoughts, not trying to control them. And so, But thoughts, because of habit, they continue. But now, because we're not immediately identifying with the thoughts, we can, in a sense, the mind knows or observes the unfolding of thought, and we can begin to see what an impersonal process that is. There isn't actually a mark there, you know, controlling the process, saying, okay, I'll think this, and then I'll think that, and then after that, I'll throw in a little of this and a little of that. 
it's really a, you can directly see thought as a natural process, impersonal, happening due to innumerable past causes and conditions, manifesting as this stream of mental activity. Same with emotion, same with sensation in the body, same with just the activity. Like you can sit on the Nicollet Mall or go to the Mall of America, and you can sit with your eyes open, find a comfortable bench, sit with your eyes open, soft gaze. You're not looking at anything in particular, just including the whole play of the visual field. And you'll see, like, and with our normal conventional point of view, it's like, oh, I like her, or I don't like this, or I want that. The mind is sort of grasping the different visual perceptions. But with a more mindful, relaxed, clear way of being in that moment, we see how impersonal that whole dance is of people coming and going and sounds and color and shape and form and movement. And the mind learns to be without grasping. So this is opening to the universal, seeing the universal characteristics of change, of the no center to the experience. So there's, you know, it's clearly there's an experience being known. But because the mind isn't imputing or projecting a center to the experience, it becomes very free of center. So this is also opening to the universal. Menindaji was one of the teachers of several of the Western teachers, um, an Indian man who had lived in Burma for a number of years and practiced with Mahasi Sayadaw. And he had this simple phrase he used to repeat to Joseph Goldstein, one of his students and one of my teachers. Joseph is one of my teachers. And he said, empty phenomena rolling on. So this is opening to the universal where whatever we're noticing, it's seen as empty phenomena rolling on. Pleasant, unpleasant, subtle, gross, internal, external. It doesn't really matter. It's just phenomena, natural, impersonal phenomena rolling on due to its own causes and conditions. Now, how do we integrate those two things? You know, integrating the personal and the universal. And I think first we, we need to understand how we chronically um, misunderstand the person. I mentioned this already a little bit. And this would probably be familiar to a lot of us. Like one of the things you see in places like Common Ground a lot, all of us see this in our own minds a lot if we look. And I mentioned it briefly, you know, just in terms of this uh, gravitation towards transcendence. Get me out of here. Get me someplace pure, simple. You know, and we can have that relationship with concentration. Like, I just want samadhi. I just want that quiet, inner bliss. Life is so troublesome. And it's like our own little, you know, tropical beach with cool breezes and nice sounds of the waves and juicy fruits where we won't be bothered. You know, no mosquitoes, no Minnesota winters, no this or that. And in this chapter, Jack Hornfield calls this spiritual bypass. And it can, you know, we see it all over the place. Like, we don't like our life, but we'll use something like, well, this is how it is. I just 
just need to accept this. This is just how it is. Everything is just the way that it is. And we, we're kind of using a spiritual platitude to suppress the fact that we don't like it, that we're upset, that we want things to be other than they are. So we can use the universal as a way of avoiding directly looking at or connecting with how our life is for us, <coughs> particularly the problems. You know, the things basically we don't want to see, like a relationship that's not working. Well, that's how it is. It's all, you know, it's all the dance of causes and conditions. And it's a way of uh, rejecting the responsibility of the personal. Because as on this level of practice, there is a thing we call responsibility. We are responsible for what we think and say and do because it has consequences for ourselves and for others. And then we misunderstand um, the personal by getting overly attached to things. So, you know, on the one hand, I could say, well, it doesn't really matter what I tell you. It doesn't matter if it's in alignment with what I experience or in alignment with what the Buddha taught, you know, because it's just causes and conditions. And if I'm not such a good teacher, well, you just it's just your karma to be here. So <laughs> good luck <laughs> or something like that. And, you know, giving away that responsibility. But it can go the other way where we become over attached strongly attached, identified with having to do it right, having to be the perfect mom or dad, having to be the perfect lover, the perfect teacher, the perfect Buddhist meditation teacher. And, uh, and there's like this strong grip grasping in the mind. And we're afraid if ever we perceive that we're deviating from what we're attached to, then of course, it seems so justified to have a lot of fear and aversion. And whenever we're going in the direction that we think is right, we, you know, we feel justified in being so happy and prideful. So with uh, misunderstanding of the universal, you know, the basic way to summarize it is we feel to some degree nothing matters. And when we're misunderstanding, perceiving, misunderstanding the personal, we think very strongly that this matters. You know, some particular thing matters. That somehow my happiness is, com my, my lasting happiness, my salvation is somehow directly tied to this one thing. And whenever we tie our salvation to one thing, you can bet we're off. Because at least the way the Buddha taught, ultimate lasting happiness is unconditioned. It's beyond the particular conditions. So if we tie it to something that's conditioned, well, nobody's in control of that. That's just a natural process. It's not dependable. So we can be on the lookout for the spiritual bypass where we're imagining some in some way that nothing matters. Or we can imagine that this like if only, that sort of if only then I'll be happy. We can be on the lookout for that. 
we're, we're justifying attachment or clinging or grasping. If I get this, if I finally get my meditation practice together, I'll be happy. Or if I finally quit smoking. <coughs> now, I'm not saying that smoking doesn't have consequences or not meditating or meditating doesn't have consequences. But it's a misunderstanding It's of thinking that this alone, this action, this activity alone, this particular condition alone, can provide lasting happiness. And so much, I think so much of spiritual life is, you know, this endless pursuit of perfection, only to find, you know, as we perfect the body and the mind and anything else, we're trying to... Kids, our partners, you know, controlling types like me, we want to perfect everybody else, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> you know, I have that uh, relationship with Common Ground, you know, I want it to be perfect. And it's endlessly frustrating, of course. But that can be a very powerful teacher because either we can't make it perfect in the way that we want, and that's frustrating. Or we do make it perfect in the way that we want, and we don't feel any better. And that's instructive, too. So don't worry if you're misunderstanding the universal or the personal, because it's going to correct itself if we're mindful enough. The feedback mechanism, is, in a sense, is really built into it. There's a great Indian saying one of the people who brought uh, Buddhist teachings to Tibet more than a thousand years ago, Padma Sambhava was his name, and he had this wonderful line where he said, although, something like, this is a paraphrase, although my view of things, my understanding is as vast as the sky, so he's saying he really gets the universal, you know, he's really woken up to the universal, and then he adds, but my attention to the lawfulness, the truth of karma, is as fine as a grain of barley flour. I don't know if you felt barley flour, but it's it's really silky and smooth, meaning the grains of barley flour are very tiny. So that, to me, is a very beautiful statement of the universal and the personal, that we can have, we can wake up to how empty of center, empty of self-centeredness, this is, this existence is. We can wake up to how ephemeral, how fluid everything is. But it doesn't excuse our responsibility. In fact, it's not even, that's too heavy of a word. It's not so much a responsibility, it's a real joy to be interested in karma to the detail, you know, to that, that amazing detail. Like, why wouldn't the heart or mind be interested in being open to cause and effect in this intricate way, out of compassion for ourselves and the world? So opening to the universal doesn't reject the personal. And in the same way, deepening the understanding of the personal, of cause and effect, of karma, the importance, the relevance of intention, that doesn't in any way contradict or dismiss the universal. And I'll just end by sharing a few thoughts about the two, like how does the personal inform the universal, right? It's, uh, 
or maybe we should say, uh, first let's do how the universal informs the personal. So when we have, uh, you know, when we're understanding the universal in light of the personal, so we're opening to the ephemeral nature, but we're grounded in insight in the personal, right? So then when we relate to how open, how fluid, how impersonal, how empty of self experience life is, grounded in our understanding of cause and effect and our understanding of what's skillful and unskillful, then the way the heart relates to this insight into the universal is in terms of skillful and unskillful. Like, how is it skillful? How can it be skillful to relate with this view of emptiness, this view of not-self? That's really the question. How to relate skillfully how to use this perception of emptiness in a way that's skillful. You see how that, so it's really grounding it in our life, like how to use that understanding to be skillful, not to cause suffering, but to be a cause for happiness and peace here in the heart and then around us. Because a lot of people, if you've you know, if you've been following sort of the Buddhism coming into the West, there have been a lot of examples of Buddhist teachers acting out of some sense of immunity to the laws of karma, you know, like getting in trouble, whether it's acting out with money or acting out with uh, sexual relations, inappropriate sexual relations, or probably other ways too. So if, we, if we're grounded in the personal opening to the universal, then that insight is always in terms of what's skillful. How does this support being skillful? Now, how does the universal, uh, how is universal understood? I'm sorry, the other way around. How's the personal understood with insight of the universal? So let's say we have insight. We're waking up and we're seeing that ephemeral, impersonal nature of experience. So how can we use that to support skillful and unskillful, taking care of business, having relationships, dealing with commitments, having to earn a living? Well, then, the way it does is it is we understand, you know, in this, in this world of the personal, we have to act. We have to think, we have to speak, we have to act, we have to do things. Not doing something is doing something. There's no way around this participation. But what the universal does is it helps us to let go. So we understand, I have this right, this obligation to engage, to act, to think, to speak, to act in the world. This unavoidable obligation. And we allow our life to pour into that, to do it, to show up. But we understand we don't have any rights to outcomes. We only have rights to, to, to participate, to think, to speak, to act. But we don't know how things are going to unfold. And we, we can know that we don't know. 
we can know that expectations or grasping particular outcomes is extra. That's not part of the package. And so that's how the universal informs the personal. Where we can be in the world of relationships, in the world of money, in the world of sex, without expectations. But not afraid to participate, not afraid to be in the messy world. And then that's a lot of freedom. Like if you're a parent or a lover or a, you know, you want to do something in the world, something that contributes or alleviates suffering, it's so messy. It's so confusing to know what to do. So we can get froze, uh, frozen up. We can, the, the sort of confusing, the messiness somehow justifies not acting. But when we understand the universal, it really frees us up to throw ourselves into the moment, to participate more fully. Because we realize it's okay not to know how things are going to unfold. That's actually not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to be attentive to the thoughts and words and actions right now. That's it. We don't really know where it's going to all lead. All we can know is, right now, is the intention wholesome or not? Is it coming out of greed or aversion, or is it coming out of non-greed, generosity, or non-aversion, like kindness? And we let go of everything else. And see, that's how the universal starts to change the personal. Now, for everybody, it's going to be a little different. And we'll talk in the next week um, about a little bit more about opening, the actual practice of opening to the universal and opening to the personal a little bit more. But you can see that everybody's a little different. Some people, as they get into spiritual life, it's really more on the level of the personal. Other people, it's more on the level of the universal. But eventually, we'll get pulled back to the other. So some people have deep insights into the universal, to emptiness, really understand in an authentic way the, the non-center, no self-center to experience. But it doesn't mean they know how to be in a relationship or earn a living or anything like that. Jack Hornfeld has some especially funny stories about that transition after being a monk in uh, Thailand for five years, I think, you know, coming back still in robes, still a monk, and just eventually disrobing and just having a difficult time navigating relationships and money and the nuts and bolts. And just like there are some people who are quite fluent in this world, they know how to be relatively skillful in relationships, know how to handle this world of money, of sex, of kids, of this and that, but they don't understand. They, they haven't really directed their attention to the more subtle or the universal. And so that's their practice will take them there. Because being really skilled in this level of the personal isn't ultimately satisfying. It, it, because there's always going to be tightness. Like, like, I'm pretty good at you know, managing the nuts and bolts of life. But it's tight. It's tight to have to be skillful. Even if you have a real sort of momentum of being skillful in this and that, it's tight. It's heavy to have to stay being skillful. 
because the mind is still attached to outcomes. So it's not just about being successful, but the mind's attached to being successful. It's identified with it, and that's suffering. So we'll naturally gravitate to how can I be free? Even if you're really successful, we'll want to be free with the success. <coughs> being identified with the success is not being free. It's being caught by our success, let alone if we haven't had that much success. But I'll leave it here so we have some time. I'm sure many of you have had your own experiences with what I'm calling the, the personal and the universal. So it would be nice to hear from you or any questions you have about the talk tonight. So what comes to mind? David. Yeah, karma yoga. So in the yogic tradition, you know, there bhakti yoga is the yoga of devotion. <coughs> Japa yoga is the yoga of, of repeating mantra. And karma yoga that David mentioned is the yoga of action, where basically we're practicing the personal, you know, emphasizing that practice of engaging the world without attachment or grasping outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, Jenny. It's, it's really, um, in a way, what you said is the definition of equanimity. You know, that phrase that's sometimes used when people do a formal equanimity practice that, you know, something like, this is what I use at least, I care about your situation, you know, like the people you're regulating, the states regulate. I care about, you know, it's not easy being a small business or whatever you're regulating. I care about you. But your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions now, you know, not upon my wishes for your well-being. And to really understand that, like, we act, we do our best, but then we really let go because we understand what happens next now 
is part of all these other causes and conditions. I participated in what, I, what seemed to me to be the skillful way to participate. And now we let go, you know, until it's our responsibility then to act again and again. But yeah, thanks, Jenny. Other thoughts? Yeah, say your name. Tanya. I think what might, a good place to start is to recognize like the value. So when we see something that's off in our life, like we're behaving in a way, because of some habit, we misbehave in a certain situation. We go to business meetings, and we always have a lot of shame, so we don't speak up, and then there are problems that arise because of that, or something like that. So there's a particular problem. It's good to see it. It's good to be motivated. This is part of the development of the personal, where we understand cause and effect, and about being skillful and unskillful. So it's good to recognize, in a sense, to deconstruct the situation and to see, oh, this is the way that it is, because when this happens, shame arises. When shame arises, my heart closes down. When my heart closes down, I'm afraid to do anything. When I don't do anything, people make these assumptions. I feel worse about, you know, and we're just sort of tracking the how things unfold. Now, seeing that probably is very skillful. But if in seeing that, we take the extra step of then hating ourselves or grasping the idea of being done with that habit once and for all, then we're kind of misusing the personal as if somehow grasping at a particular outcome getting identified or attached is skillful, is actually useful in any way or functional in any way. And it's not. And that's, and that's kind of what you're describing is that you have some sense that what you're seeing is useful, probably is useful. But we, the fear, the, the strong desire not to suffer makes us overshoot the insight that we're having. And this is where the universal can really help. The more we understand the great play of causes and conditions and how impersonal it is, then even though we do have these insights about how our life might work better, uh, it's not so charged. It's not, in a sense, life and death. Because we understand there are innumerable causes and conditions at play right now. And, uh, and we can basically... Uh, 
sort of trust that flavor of impersonal, like it's impersonal. The fact that I keep getting stuck in this particular way, it's not so much Mark who's doing that. It's the, the different patterns that have been set in motion due to other previous causes and conditions. So we're, that deconstruction combined with the universal, it really allows us to work with the information that we're seeing, you know, that we're getting by just paying attention to cause and effect in a skillful way. Because, you know, a lot of, we're seeing a lot in our lives, you know, um, because we, you know, one of the things about suffering is it wakes us up, in a sense, to, to a degree, it wakes us up. We start paying attention. When our knees hurt, we pay attention. When we feel, you know, the pain of loss, we pay attention. But we misinterpret the pain. Because we take it personally, we bring a big charge to the information we do have. And that, that gen generally swings us someplace, you know, we overshoot or we, uh, we miss the opportunity to, to be skillful. Which is why the emphasis on integration of the two. And, you know, when you look at how the Buddha taught, like even the monks and nuns, you know, they, they were very much tied in both to the, all the elaborate rules, rules of conduct but also tied into the lay community to feed them every day and to give them clothes, the robes to wear. And so they couldn't just sort of disappear into the universal, like in deep states of meditation. They had to interact with one another. They had to go get their food every day. And so really grounding them in the world of relationships, in the personal, because it's part of the development of the practice. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, I don't know. Remember your name. My name is Karen. Karen. Um, well, I have a neighbor who um, is very tied into the universal idea that a cat should roam freely <laughs> and do whatever cats do freely on our door. <laughs> Quite often, and my husband is very tied into the personal, and I'm safely in a virgin like that. <laughs> hear things like there are so many stories of seemingly little interactions that have the cause for tremendous pain and and then ripples from there. And this is, you know, this would be an example where 
uh, deeper insight into the universal would be helpful, actually, because to the degree we think these particular events and particular life situations are um, directly connected to our happiness, then we're going to fight to the death, basically. Because as an animal, we want survival. And you know, as a psychological being, survival means being happy or getting what we want. And so if that's all we understand, then that becomes really important. Like, I know that attachment to order. And I mean, we have a cat. It's my wife's cat. <laughs> I like my cat, our cat, but I forgot I'm recording it tonight. <laughs> I do love you, Sumi. But the people who like order, it can feel like a direct personal attack when she claws at the piece of furniture or one of the things our cat does is if the meat in her dish, we, we cook her own meat, you know, we buy organic meat for Sumi and cut it up and mix it with oatmeal and other nice things. And But if we don't cut it up small enough, she'll take the chunk of meat and she'll walk to where there's some carpet and eat it there. I'm not sure. We haven't quite figured out what the evolutionary trait is that makes a cat want to do that. But she does that, you know. And that bothers me. So when, when, I'm, uh, when I'm more grounded in the universal, then I can still do something. I can be playful and as skillful as I can be to participate to make it not so, so that we're not getting food stains on the carpet. And when I'm grounded in the universal, I understand that I might or might not be successful. But it's just going to be what it's going to be. And it's not about my survival as a happy person, you know? It's just about me taking care of business, keeping the house orderly, keeping the house neat, you know, not having roaches or bugs or other things because of the food around the house, things like that. And I can, I can be vigorous, but I don't have to be tight, and it doesn't have to be a cause for suffering. But when I'm not grounded in the universal, then it seems to really matter whether I prevent her from doing that or not. It seems like it's going to be directly related to my personal safety. So not, being, not having insight into the universal, then this is all we got, this life right here. And this conditioning is all we got. We are this conditioning without insight into the universal. And then anything that insults this is a, direct, is a real threat. And we should expect the kind of reaction any animal will give to a threat. You know, we'll scratch, we'll bite, we'll do whatever we need to do. I haven't done that yet. <laughs> but I do chase Sumi. <laughs> has she, has she, has she, has she uh, taught you how to cut her food up before? I'm working on my wife. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're considering buying a grinder. <laughs> But then you have to clean the grinder. <laughs> Life is so challenging. <laughs> and you know, it's amazing how these small things can be very weightful. Like, oh my God. And you just want to throw it all out. Like, I mean, like, literally, like, well, someday she'll die. <laughs> and then we won't have to deal with it. 
I mean, people have thoughts like this, right? Now, I think, uh, just to sort of put this in perspective, I think a real, and I'm serious about this, this next piece, a real sign of practice is that despicable thoughts like that can arise and we don't take them personally. Because that's how it is. And a real sign of, of uh, understanding the universal is not being freaked out by the different thoughts that arise in the mind and not taking them personally, including really sublime, beautiful thoughts and not getting attached to those, or really despicable thoughts like waiting for the time your cat will no longer be <laughs> so you don't have to clean up messes. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Any last thoughts? You have a couple minutes left if anybody wants to. Yes, please. Um, I have a really hard time struggling with um, romantic relationships just because of the, the personalization is so much more charged than, like, say, friendships. Um, so I was trying to figure out, like, and because of the attachment comes fear. And then instead of, like, having whatever enjoyment that That would have been a really good example to use how we misperceive the universal and the personal because half of us probably, uh, the way we handle the intensity of intimate relationships is we, um, we sort of overuse the universal. Like, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to get close. It's just a relationship, you know. And we're, we're kind of preventing that real showing up, real commitment, real connection. And the other half feels it does. It really does matter. This is it. This is my happiness is a function of this relationship. My well-being is completely dependent on this relationship being healthy. And so both of those views are uh, imbalanced, out of balance. And so if your, our tendency is the thinking that it really does matter, then we have to realize that it doesn't actually matter in the way that we imagine it does. By having moments when uh, we're realizing real, a real deep, resonant sense of well-being and peace and happiness when the person isn't around. When we can touch a resonant happiness without the person, then our relationship to that person shifts in a really positive way. So then the, the love and the doing stuff together and whatever kind of commitment you're going to have with that person, then it's, you know, then it's, a, uh, it's more about uh, playing and expressing joy than about dependence and need. And uh, it's lighter. And so 
it's, I think it's essential. You know, some of my Burmese meditation teachers, they, they had a kind of a basic way of looking where they'd encourage a lot of the young Burmese women, teenagers, to come and spend three months at the monasteries and do intensive practice. And they, they used to say it's very important that you have the first stage of enlightenment before you get married and have kids. And then they go, it makes it a lot easier. <laughs> because it does. I mean, I don't know about first stage of awakening, but the deeper the insight into the universal, the easier it is to be in intimate relationships. And without deep insight, intimate relationships are painful. Right? <laughs> Even, you know, relatively wholesome, successful relationships are often, at, at least in moments, very painful. So it can be an encouragement to develop insight into the universal so that we're not looking for happiness, lasting happiness through the relationship. We're looking for someone to share a resonant happiness that we're touching more and more often so now we can share it with them. So it's more like generosity, like a place to express happiness as opposed to a place to get happiness. But we have to leave it here, so let's just take a few seconds, let go of the word. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.